Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from Ukraine, discuss the challenges and hopes of Ukraine's EU journey, and we get the lowdown on Ukrainian democracy and politics from regular guest and contributor Aliona Hilivko. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 9th of November, one year and 258 days since the full-scale invasion began. And joining me today are Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley, and Aliona Hilivko, Managing Director at the Henry Jackson Society. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's start off in the east, around Avdivka, and Ukraine's military has said that Russia has grouped an estimated 40,000 troops in the area preparing for the third wave of assaults. Um, we talked yesterday that whether or not this is actually how you count the waves is un, we're unsure, but Ukraine yesterday was talking about successive waves and saying they were waiting for the next one, this third one. So Anton uh, Kotskon, the spokesperson for the 110th Separate Mechanized Brigade, said they are building up reserves. They've brought in about 40,000 men here, along with ammunition of all calibers. We see no sign of the Russians abandoning plans to encircle Avdivka. Now, we know that that Russia has been pushing to the north and the south from their positions in the east. Mr. Kosukans has said that they are playing cat and mouse by sending up huge numbers of drones to scout out Ukraine's defences. They've been hitting, Russia been pushing against Avdivka for months at great cost. We think the town has only about 1,500 people from its 30,000-ish pre-war residents remaining. It's not exactly the same situation as Bakhmut, which was a great opportunity to get the Russian military and in particular the Wagner group to, to break itself. Avdivka has has more um, significance than that. It's, it's not a major strategic hub, but it would be it would confer significant advantage to whichever side holds it because Ukraine's had it for so many years. They've built up strong defences there. So if, if Russia were able to hold, take possession of those defences, it's a tough nut to crack, as we are seeing. Equally, Ukraine sees it as a kind of springboard from which it can push into the east as and when, uh, as and when they are able and willing to do so. Now, separately, 
Russian state media. So, OK, got to sort of if they're happy to trumpet it, we've got to take this uh, with a grain of salt, but possibly closer to the truth than, than from the Mill blog community. Russian state media are saying that um, they're now going to be using Russia's going to be using Ukrainian prisoners of war on the front lines to fight for Moscow. So a video posted by RAA Novosti shows Ukrainians swearing allegiance to Russia. They're, they're dressed in all the all the gear, got weapons. They're going to be uh, in a battalion named for the controversial medieval nobleman and state leader Bogdan Manitsky. Obviously not immediately possible for us to verify that report. The report did happen, but not exactly possible for us to verify that the event has happened or whether there is any coercion for the prisoners of war into making this, this supposed move. But it would be a violation of the Geneva Conventions relating to the treatment of prisoners of war that forbids the PWs in British terminology, prisoners of war, POWs in many other countries, forbid them from being exposed to combat or from working in unhealthy or dangerous conditions, whether they are coerced slash volunteered or not. So Yulia Gobinova, who's a senior researcher on Ukraine at the Human Rights Watch, said Russian authorities might claim they are recruiting them on a voluntary basis, but it's hard to imagine a scenario where a prisoner of war's decision could be taken truly voluntarily, given the situation of coercive custody. Next, next, next. Russia, uh, this is so today's UK defence intelligence update, says Russia is likely will likely need to reallocate surface-to-air missile systems protecting distant parts of Russia to maintain its coverage and effort in Ukraine following recent losses up to including last week around Andivka. So, so uh, British Defence Intelligence saying today, positioned at strategically important locations as well as along Russia's borders, removing systems would almost certainly weaken Russia's air defence posture on its peripheries. The reallocation of strategic air defence assets would further demonstrate how the Ukraine conflict some might say a war, continues to overextend Russia's military and strains its ability to retain baseline defences across its vast area. I mean, this is this continues. We talked yesterday about the signature equipment, how some, some bits of, of kit equipment are much more valuable than others. I was talking yesterday about um, combat engineering capabilities, but air defence systems are certainly in that bracket. So the fact that these are being very heavily worn down, destroyed. That is a significant... I mean, they, they, you, don't, you don't replace them overnight, basically. And if Russia is having to move them from elsewhere around around the country, particularly along the border with Finland, which apparently now it's in NATO, is just waiting to invade, then that is, uh, that is significant. Next one. A Russian missile has damaged a Liberia-flagged civilian vessel entering the Black Sea, well, Odessa region of the Black Sea, killed one, injured four... This was this came out of Ukrainian officials yesterday. So you'll remember since pulling out of the grain deal, the UN brokered deal that guarantees safe shipments for Ukrainian grain through the Black Sea, Russia has repeatedly hit Ukrainian port infrastructure. Ukraine's Southern Military Command said on Telegram this morning the missile hit the superstructure of a civilian vessel under the flag of Liberia at the moment of its entry into the port. Then responding to that, Denise Brown, who's the humanitarian coordinator for Ukraine from the UN, said the consequences of this brutal and relentless pattern of Russian attacks on port facilities are devastating for Ukraine's economy and the hundreds of millions of people facing hunger worldwide. I'm outraged to learn of an attack yesterday on a civilian vessel in Odessa, killing a port worker and injuring crew members. International humanitarian law strictly prohibits attacks on civilian infrastructure. Uh, the vessel, the Liberian flagged vessel, 
was thought to be transporting iron ore to uh, China. That came from Ukraine's uh, infrastructure minister, Alexander Kubrikov. On the ground, continued uh, shelling and missile strikes have, have, have killed people, civilians across across the country, but in particular in the east. Fighting is continuing along the line of contact. And Ukraine's emergency services on, on social media said the village of Bagatia were, was hit yesterday out in the east, causing, um, causing civilian deaths. A couple more. Ener- energy infrastructure. Russia is thought to have attacked Ukraine's energy system 60 times uh, in the run-up to winter. This is from Ukraine's energy ministry yesterday. They are U- Ukraine is bracing itself for as last winter. Uh, another concerted campaign of attacks on the power grid. Last winter, you'll remember thousands of uh, Russian drones and missiles uh, hit the power sector. Widespread black- blackouts. Uh, But the Energy Ministry said in a statement, in recent weeks, energy infrastructure facilities were attacked 60 times with different types of weapons. After each new attack, the need for energy equipment grows and therefore the help of partners for the Ukrainian energy sector is very important. We're going to hear more of that, I'm sure, in the next next few weeks. And then just finally, since since February 22, nearly 4,000 educational facilities have been damaged or destroyed by Russia. This is coming out of Human Rights Watch. They said that this morning. Most of the damage to the educational facilities resulted from aerial attacks, artillery, rockets, in some cases including cluster munitions, causing significant damage. And the Human Rights Watch uh, offered a a 71-page report and said that Russian forces have frequently looted and pillaged schools um, that they've occupied, which is a war crime. Uh, Hugh Williamson, who's the director of the Europe and Central Asia Division of Human Rights Watch, said Ukrainian children have paid a high price in this war because attacks on education are attacks on their future. And they put a figure on it, 3,790 educational facilities damaged or destroyed by Russia since the start of the full-scale invasion. And I'll take a pause there, David. Well, thank you very much, Dom. Francis Dernley, yesterday we heard from our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, who's in the room as Ursula von der Leyen, the EU Commission president, announced uh, that they believed that Ukraine was ready for or recommending Ukraine for um, negotiations to begin to, to enter the EU. Uh, you've had further reflections on this. Francis Dernley. Well, thanks, David. Ukraine will one day become a member of the European Union. I see that now as a statement of fact, not speculation an indicator of just how far we've come since the outbreak of the war in February last year. Yet, as Joe and I both discussed yesterday, the news that the EU Commission agrees that Ukraine is ready to start the process of joining the EU is not the end. Indeed, it's not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. It will take years, many years, for Ukraine to become a member, and the country will have to undergo many reforms in order to be considered ready for membership. We've spoken in the past about the economic ramifications of Ukraine's membership, but also the potential opportunities in the long term. And no doubt Aliona will have some thoughts on that later on. Because of that protracted timeline, some are treating this signal from the Commission more cynically, arguing that it is designed to give Ukraine a lifeline so that it can begin negotiations for peace, having banked, as it were, its future place in the European family. If that was the goal, and my own view is that that would downplay Ursula von der Leyen's personal commitment to Ukraine's accession, then Kyiv is coming out hard today to dismiss those calling for it to hold negotiations with Russia. 
Those who argue that Ukraine should negotiate with Russia now are either uninformed or misled, Foreign Minister Kuliba said. Either that or they side with Russia and want Putin to take a pause before an even larger aggression. He went on and stressed Kiev had held hundreds of rounds of talks with Moscow since 2014, all of which had failed to bring lasting peace or, of course, prevent the full-scale invasion. Zelensky, too, as we've discussed in the past, remains adamant that Ukraine will succeed despite slow progress in the counteroffensive. We have some slow steps forward in the south of the country. Also, we have steps in the east and some, I think, good steps near the Herzon region. I am sure we'll have success. It's difficult, he told Reuters. We'll try to show the result this year. We don't need to surprise everybody in the world. We need this for ourselves. Crucially, and this will come as no surprise to listeners, he suggested that international delays to weapons deliveries had contributed to the slow progress. Our soldiers came south and saw a lot of minefields because we waited for ammunition for seven months, he said. He also added that the Israel-Hamas conflict could not be compared to a full-scale war. I'm not trying to say that something is more important with all respect to the nations, but you have to understand the full-scale war is another thing, he said. Now, these kind of remarks, justly or unjustly, will no doubt cause some exasperation among Kiev's allies, partly because it shames them. If I was Zelensky, I'd be wondering now what I could do to innovate. As terrible as it sounds, I think people can now comfortably predict what he's going to say, which inevitably leads to less of an inclination to listen. To change the narrative, one needs to change the conversation. The horizons of Kiev's allies have, after all, been expanded by this war. Responding to the anxiety of North Korea's relationship with Russia, Euro Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in South Korea today, something we advertised a few days ago, warning that the increasing military cooperation between Pyongyang and Moscow is dangerous. We share profound concerns about Pyongyang's growing and dangerous military cooperation with Russia, he said in a press conference. Russia, too, is seeking to cement ties. Putin visits Kazakhstan today following his trip last month to Kyrgyzstan for the summit of ex-Soviet nations. Speaking at the start of his talks with Kazakhstan's president, Putin hailed multifaceted ties between the countries and said they would determine new areas of strategic cooperation. Now, listeners will recall that oil-rich Kazakhstan and other Central Asian nations have maintained a delicate balancing act, preserving strong economic ties with Moscow, but refusing to recognise its annexation of the Ukrainian regions currently under Russia's control. No doubt there will be some frank conversations behind closed doors. Putin also commented on that senior Chinese general being hosted in Moscow, hailing Russia's strengthening military ties with Beijing. Our contacts in the military and military technology spheres are becoming increasingly important, he said. He added that Moscow and Beijing were not building a Cold War-style military alliance, but the cooperation between them is a serious factor stabilising the glowing situation, global situation. It's interesting to hear Putin use that same wording as Shoigu yesterday, saying that Russia and China are not building an alliance reminiscent of the Cold War era. I wonder if the Chinese stipulated that he say that, and that would be revealing if so. Now, 
I'll end with just a few economic updates. Russia first. The UK has imposed sanctions on 29 individuals and entities in Russia's gold and oil sectors. Among those sanctioned were two of Russia's largest gold producers, Nord Gold PLC and Highland Gold Mining Limited. The two companies did not immediately respond to requests for comment. The National Crime Agency also issued an alert to financial institutions, warning them about Russian attempts to use gold to evade sanctions. Meanwhile, a United Arab Emirates-based network that the government said was responsible for channeling more than $300 million in gold revenues to Russia was also sanctioned. Now, we'll have to do a proper update on the sanctions situation another time, but it goes without saying there are cracks. Reuters have looked into the cases of a private jet linked to a Russian oligarch, which has had to divert its flight routes since the war from the French Riviera, the Maldives and the Seychelles to Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Belarus and China, a sign of both the limitations and limited reach of Western sanctions in place since Moscow's invasion. Those oligarchs are still getting out and about and it is not trapping them in Russia, which I think was the original intention. Now, lastly, and perhaps most importantly in the economic field today, we have just heard in the last hour that Ukraine's parliament has approved a state budget for next year, planning for 4.6% economic growth and setting a deficit at about $43.58 billion. The budget revenues are set at that, and next year more than half of all Ukrainian budget spending is planned for the defence sector to fund the war, indicative of just how transformative this conflict is for the economy. Just by way of contrast, 16% of the total federal budget in the US is spent on defence. In Britain, it's about 44 of government spending and in Poland, around 10%. But no doubt we'll want to unpack that further with Aliona. Well, thank you very much, Francis and Dom. Let's go to Aliona Hilivko first. First of all, it's very good to see you again, Aliona. Thank you so much for coming into the studio. Let's start with the EU news then. Francis just now said that this is not even the end, the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. What do you say to that? What's your reaction to the news we heard from the EU Commission yesterday? Thank you, David. It's great to be here in the studio with Francis and Dom. Great news for Ukraine indeed on the European front. It's very interesting to hear Francis say that perhaps it could be used as a mechanism to force Ukraine into peace negotiations and to say, okay, maybe one milestone has been achieved, so now it's time to progress on other fronts. What I hear from European officials, that is actually a real accession process. Uh, The Ukraine has earned its right to become a full member of the European community, that Ukraine has proved its right to be called a European nation. There are, of course, many reforms still to be done in Ukraine. Amongst the seven points that are being put to Ukraine by the European Commission to reform, I think Ukraine has made a great progress on at least six. Some of them are incomplete, like the national minorities law, like the legislation on media still needs to be amended. There are, of course, many issues on anti-corruption efforts and anti-money laundering, de-oligarchization. All of those are underway. But certainly Ukraine is making a really good progress. The worrying thing, though, is if the European Union is trying to reach this wave of expansion with Ukraine and eight other nations, I think I'm correct, with eight other nations in Europe who want to join the European Union by 2030. We will need to fight through many dynamics within the European Union. 
First of all, Ukraine will still need to maintain on the upward trajectory with its reforms, uh, with its democratic procedures. It would be nice to see who will be the president in 2030 and whether that figure will still be as uniting for Ukraine and for the European leadership, because President Zelensky did unite the nation. But it would be very interesting to see if by 2030 the war is either won or it's in some sort of final stage. What stage is that going to be? How it's going to look? Who's going to be in power? Is it going to be a centrist government, just like it's safe to say it is now? Uh, is it going to be slightly more nationalist after the war, which those tendencies could be there? Will it be disappointed, perhaps, in some of the Western partners' lack of help and support throughout the war? And maybe the war damage and the casualties will be too high because of the stalling of the ammunition and weapons supply. So the, all of those internal factors in Ukraine will play a massive role. And we can't really answer those questions now. But also the European neighbors of Ukraine, like Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, even Romania and, and Bulgaria, potentially. What is their stance going to be on Ukraine entering the EU and which quotas and tariffs will be acceptable to Ukraine? Which ones will be agreed upon? We have seen a massive agricultural crisis unfolding in Poland over the last few months. So what the situation is going to be there like with the truckers, with the farmers of Poland? Ukraine is a very strong agricultural player and entering the EU market will certainly be challenging. And Poland, of course, is, is known for its very strong stance on protecting their national produce. So it's going to be very interesting to see how those countries who have been the biggest supporters in the war, how they will act in the time of peace, because normally that's quite a different story. So there are so many factors to watch before Ukraine actually becomes a member of the European Union. But I, like Francis, am 90% certain that we will be the EU member. Well, thank you very much for that overview, Aliona. I know that Dom and Francis have questions on this, so why don't we take those questions now before we move on? Dom, since you messaged me first, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Thanks, David. Aliona, lovely to see you again. A couple, if I may, it might not have escaped your notice that we in this country have had a little bit of a falling out with the EU. I just want to, we're talking about Ukraine wants to join the EU, it's going to be great, you know, travel and all the, the economic benefits and, you know, all that, kind of, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I could go on, but I fear I'll get a bit of flack here from my right flank. But, you know, what kind of internal opposition is there, if any, in Ukraine to joining the EU? We, we seem to talk about it as this unalloyed, good and popular move. Is it really? It is really, in fact, and that's rare. And I think that's something really new for the Ukrainian society. Obviously, Ukraine has been moving towards the European Union, European values and aspirations to become a part of this European community for a long time. I personally witnessed that shift through my whole adult adulthood when we first started with the Orange Revolution in 2004. That was the very first social uprising to join the EU, to have European rules and norms, for example, during the elections, all the way through to 2014, when the president refused to sign the EU association agreement and the massive protest broke out. So that was the reaffirmation of that. All the way until then, the social when you would do the social polling, it would show that 
the narrative would change within the society. It went from 60% wanting to be friends with Russia, and that would, of course, mostly be older generation, to 40% of youth being pro-Europe. And I think as the generation grew and those young people who gained their first right to vote, people coming out of schools and universities, they would fill up the gap of wanting to be more European than Soviet, then moving towards Russia. So I think right now, and especially after the first invasion in 2014, nine years of war, and now the second invasion, there's definitely very little of pro-Russian narrative left, perhaps maybe only in the occupied territories and the territories near the front line. Everyone else, I think it's safe to say, I can't. Re- I, I haven't seen the recent numbers, but last year it was something uh, around 90% for joining European Union and even a higher number to join NATO, of course. But I think for now it's a solid consensus in the Ukra- Ukrainian society. Thanks. Now, you mentioned NATO there at the end. I was going to ask about hard security guarantees. Is Is it very clear to society in Ukraine, that actually the EU can do very little in hard security. There is the PESCO, the Permanent Secured Corporation, something else. In fact, I don't really know it. It shows that that it's never really been a a feature. But, you know, are people very open-eyed about what EU membership is and, and in terms of hard security guarantees, what it definitely is not? Absolutely. Even though when I listened to Ursula von der Leyen's address to the ambassadors of the EU after she came back from her trip to Ukraine, she mentioned the European Defence Union or an idea of such that perhaps the EU will try to establish. And I've heard that also from several uh, European Union officials that that actually could be on the agenda of some sort of defense union. I think it started in France, of course, trying to put something together. But Ukrainians are very clear about the fact that it's more of an economic and cultural community that they want to join, that they want to be a part of this new world and move away from the Soviet past, somewhere where Russia is desperately trying to pull us back into. When it comes to security guarantees, defense, and just having safety on our eastern border. That definitely goes towards NATO, and that's why we are separating very clearly the EU membership and NATO membership, and that is definitely not off the agenda. Elena, lovely to see you. I want to ask about Zelensky's decision to not go ahead with a general election. Mm. It's quite a controversial one, I think many would say, that we've been debating it on the podcast, the advantages and disadvantages of him doing it or not doing it, as the case may be. Where do you stand on this? And perhaps most interestingly, where do you think Ukraine itself stands on this? We've not really heard that many voices from within the country itself comment on this, but I imagine that there are some for which this is very controversial and they're frustrated about it. Very quickly, could I add on a question there, Francis, and just to say, if the election doesn't happen... At what point do you think the democratic sort of legitimacy does run out? As we know that this, we don't know when this war may end, of course. So does this, does that sort of, yeah, I mean, that, that's the question. Aliona. Um, thank you, David and, and Francis. So first of all, I will say that for me as a Ukrainian, it was really strange to hear the calls from the West to hold the elections. Um, because for us, and maybe because I was in politics, it, it's very clear, again, as I've said, that during the martial law, the elections in Ukraine are out of question. It's 
banned under the Constitution. The martial law doesn't give the right to hold an elections, to announce the elections, while the martial law is in act. So it was really strange to hear those calls. Obviously, we knew that we were meant to have presidential elections in 2024, but we are desperately trying to protect our borders and people are dying every day and, and um, energy infrastructure gets targeted. We are losing children and, and men and women in this war. So the elections are actually the last thing that is on Ukrainians' minds. And I'm not saying that just on behalf of myself. I did specifically go on to Ukrainian media. I've tried to read and listen to various experts in the field, journalists, civil society, watchdogs. I talked to some friends. I talked to my brother who's on the front line, who's my focus group from the military side, of course. And basically the information and the consensus is there along the lines that it's ridiculous to hold the elections right now. And it's not just ridiculous, it's extremely dangerous. And I will go into perhaps potential thinking within the Ukrainian government and what their views is on that. But first of all, the Ukrainians uh, themselves. There's a big fear amongst the Ukrainian population that this division that the election will inevitably bring, that it will cause separation in unity amongst the elites, the loss of focus, the loss of diplomatic effort to keep advocating for more weapons, more aid, protect energy infrastructure. It will simply divert the attention and the energy resources of those people who are meant to be leading the country in the war towards petty politics, effectively. That's number one. And that is something I hear from my brother, that he's saying, you know, we... We need Zelensky there. He was even saying to me that it's great when he comes to the front line and he tries to cheer the troops up and give out the medals. But he says, look, we can't lose him now. He better not get that close to the front line because we don't want the infighting to start in the capital and for them to lose the focus. That's number one. Ukrainians themselves do not feel in majority. I can't speak for every single one of them, but at least... The ones I've spoken to and the feeling that I'm get, I'm getting, Ukrainians don't feel like the government is losing its legitimacy because, again, everyone is very clear on the fact that we need to stay mobilized and the country is under martial law. And we might get used to this reality of reporting on the war, myself included, from London. But when you're in Ukraine, you walk out onto the street every day. You don't see any men. It's just women, children, elderly you can't stay outside beyond the curfew hours. It's still there. Now with the winter, there's, again, people are turning off electricity. Uh, there's rationing of electricity because we're preparing for a tough winter. So at least two hours to three hours a day, you don't have electricity anymore. Uh, people are stocking up on candles. The legitimacy of the government is the last thing on people's agenda. Um, and when it comes to the government itself, um, there is a strong consideration for the elections. It's not just that they're denying the idea, okay, we need to hold the elections. And I've heard this. Uh, the reason why there is this consideration is because I've just come back from Washington, D.C. a week ago, and I've heard from the lobbyists on the Capitol Hill saying the phrase to me, well, even if Putin is holding the elections, the authoritarian leader is holding the elections, how is it that the democratic Ukraine, who's fighting for the values of freedom and human rights, refuses to have the elections? And it's just, again, such a ridiculous argument for me because Putin is waging the war on the neighboring country and his regime effectively depends 
on this war, external war. It doesn't affect him. There are no occupied territories in Russia. There is no problem of uh, holding the vote in trenches. There is going to be no problem of getting the, the observers, even though Russia doesn't need to worry about international observers of the elections. But how is Ukraine meant to hold the elections? Um, first of all, how do we account for the occupied territories? How representative is that vote going to be? How do you hold the elections in the areas near the front line? where Ukrainians will be targeted and shelled, attacked by the drones as soon as they gather around the voting area. There are talks about maybe spreading the elections across several days even, just to accommodate that. But again, securing those villages and the gatherings of people during the vote is almost impossible. How do you get international observers there? How do you let soldiers on the front line in the trenches vote? All of these questions are being passed down to Capitol Hill and there are no answers there. There's just simply this blind narrative of Russia's holding the elections. Why isn't Ukraine doing the same? Well, Russia doesn't have any occupied territories and the elections in Russia are sham. So they don't need to worry about all of these mechanisms. Ukraine is trying to keep all of its resources intact to just stay focused on the war and to prevent the loss of life. That's the number one thing for us on the agenda. And one final thing on thoughts, even in close circle around President Zelensky, according to what I hear from some journalists in Kiev, when they're saying that he is actually seriously considering, he's thinking, is it right in order for him to stay, to keep this perception of being a legitimate leader in the West? Is it worth for him to actually try to explore the idea of holding elections? Now, all of the things that I've just listed, they're all a great impediment to the elections. And they're trying to think of how to hold the, those across several days, maybe several even weeks, trying to do the staggered approach with focused air defense on the areas where the vote will be held, how to divide the elected representatives for those electoral areas and, and how to secure them, etc. So they are thinking of potentially holding those elections because some of the close people to President Zelensky are also saying to him that maybe this is the time next year when there will be a new spring counteroffensive with fighter jets on the ground, with resupplied ammunition, perhaps some more weapons, uh, more long-range systems sent from the United States, England and France, Maybe potentially even Germany will come around with its tourists, but who knows. Then maybe that will be the best chance for President Zelensky to actually win the elections again and close the subject once and for all for the next five years. Because perhaps if the war doesn't go to plan, or if maybe he will repeat Churchill's fate and he will not be as popular even if the war is won, and all the burden of all the loss in the Ukrainian society will just be associated purely with him, because as much of a leadership role he's getting now, he will have to bear all the consequences himself too. So maybe it's best for his own personal brand to even embark on these elections now. So I think we're yet to see the outcome of those deliberations. According to the current elections law in Ukraine, the elections need to be announced in December. So the martial law forbids to hold the elections during the martial law being in act, but the current election law does not, there are no repercussions even under martial law not to announce 
the elections. So that is officially by Ukrainian legislature. That's the cutoff deadline to announce those elections. So we will see in December. But I'm hoping that, weirdly enough, President Zelensky will deny the idea that he needs to get reelected now to secure his spot and even risk not getting reelected later, but still keep being focused on the war. Thank you. It's very interesting hearing those comments, but also hearing what you heard in Washington, which tallies with what we were speculating a couple of days ago, given that Putin is running for election very much in inverted commas. So you made reference there to the potential for infighting if there were an election. What are the factions within Ukrainian politics at the moment? Who do you think that fighting would come from? Who are the Zelensky critics and who would we see stand against him, do you think? Ukrainian politics have experienced an interesting shift in the last two years, where as before, as I've told several times on this podcast, Ukrainian politicians similar to society were divided between pro-Russian and pro-European. Today, 90% of them are pro-European. We're for Ukraine's sovereignty, territorial integrity, the victory in the war. So in that sense, everyone aligns. But it has now come to the tactics and the strategy of the war. And there are several factions that are being formed as we speak. So first of all, it's the volunteer sector. We have seen the emergence of several strong leaders within the volunteer section, uh, the ones who've secured really a lot of ammunition, uh, humanitarian aid, health care. They actually made a huge difference on the front line. And those will be one of the one of the factions that will be going for political power. And there's also division amongst those. So we will see maybe two or three candidates, really strong candidates emerging from the volunteer sector. Now then, there's a military sector, and I'm sure you talked about this alleged rivalry between President Zelensky and his main military guy, Valery Zaluzhny. Um, that's been rumored for a long time, and we've seen General's recent article for The Economist, where President Zelensky perhaps is contradicting some of his statements, although I don't think it's actually there. I think it's more being played out against each other. Um, there was the very first time when it was being alleged that Valery Zaluzhny might be the candidate for president last year, and he was being asked that question quite regularly. He kept denying his political ambitions, but also in quite a vague manner. So that could still be a possibility. He could be one of the military leaders running for the next elections. We can also see a lot of regional ones, like the commander of the South, uh, we could see some new emerging soldiers who are quite active on the front line. The, the leaders coming out straight of the war that are quite outspoken, that could highlight some of the mistakes done during planning the strategy and tactics of the war. So that's the second sector that's also quite divided, and we could see something along those lines. The journalists, the civil society, the people who are focused on reconstruction and from some main watchdog bodies in Ukraine that would be looking towards reconstruction more. I think that could be another strong voice going forward of what the Ukraine of the future will look like. And they could actually bring that vision as something to recover from post-war trauma and not to focus so much on the past as rather look into the future. So I think that could be the third sector. 
And there's a fourth interesting group of people which who are the bereaved former government officials who were fired in the last year or two from either President Zelensky's close circle or his administration, former ministers, former ambassadors. We could see all of them coming back into politics to be the opposition voices, highlighting all of the mistakes that were done trying to get into power. And what about Klitschko, another name that we hear sometimes banded around? Mayor Klitschko used to be quite a strong voice and and a candidate. Even last year, there was quite a lot of arguing going on between the president's administration and Mayor Klitschko. And it was very interesting to see how very rightly so, I guess, President Zelensky has some good political advisors that he would not directly talk about him or try not to talk about him. It would be like the head of his administration or his advisors not to put him on the same level with the president. So I think he was considered a rival of Zelensky because I think I'm remembering correctly because all the elections are all blended into one now before the war. But he did run against Zelensky and Poroshenko in the first door of the elections when Zelensky was eventually elected in the second one. So Klitschko will probably run. I'm I'm most sure about it. There are some allegations that perhaps there's a lot of corruption going on in Kiev. So I think his candidacy will strongly depend on that, whether that those allegations are true, how credible and viable they are, and how much his direct involvement is in those potential scandals. Thanks so much for all of this, Aliona. One quick question from me. You mentioned briefly in your answer about the tensions between Zelensky and potentially uh, Zeluzhny. Uh, and we we were aware, of course, and we've reported on the, the tensions that came from the article and the essay in The Economist and his, his interview there. You mentioned that this potential rivalry has been going on quite a long time. How serious do you think this is? And is that rivalry sort of, is that well known amongst ordinary Ukrainians? Is this something, I mean, you mentioned that, that your brothers, your brother on the front lines fear that this kind of infighting could hinder the war effort. Is this sort of what he, he's thinking of? I can't say for sure how real that rivalry is. I must say the voices highlighting this rivalry are stronger here in the West than they are in Ukraine. When the Ukrainian journalists, for example, discuss this thing, it's almost, it's very interesting, different tone to it, because obviously here in the West, we're focused on bringing the real information, discussing it in the open as brutally as we can. Whereas in Ukraine, it's such a sacred thing, the unity of the nation right now at the time of war. And that potential rivalry between the president and General Zeluzhny could be detrimental to the war effort. So people are asking questions. Could we actually believe that that's a thing? Do we actually think that General Zeluzhny could have political ambitions? Because again, his figure is much needed in in the very active military role and strategy planning and delivering on the battlefield rather than worrying about some political ambitions that he has. And the same goes for Zelensky, who's been a great leader in the time of war, a great international representative. So no one would ever want to undermine him as a political leader and to degrade him to some petty political rivalry. So the questions are being asked. As I've said, there were some allegations last year that perhaps Zeluzhny might have political ambitions, but they were not confirmed. And frankly, not that much attention is being paid to it because Ukraine is facing, as I've said, a a whole load of different other problems that is not that pertinent. 
When it comes to my brother or other soldiers, militaries who are fighting on the front line, that information doesn't even trickle down to them because there is such a strong focus and discipline within the military ranks that that doesn't even come up. It's so irrelevant to them. That's fair enough. Thank you very much, Eleona. One final question from us, I think. At the end of his section, Francis talked about the the second war budget that Ukraine's RADA has just voted through. What's your reaction to that? Was anything surprising in that? Or did you think it was what everyone was expecting? So 50% of the budget going towards defence it was not surprising at all. I think uh, it was discussed before that the budget needs to strongly focus on Ukraine becoming sufficient at least in defending itself. So it's nowhere near that benchmark yet, but there's definitely a very strong focus. We've discussed it here at Telegraph and on the podcast and also with Dominic on Defense in Depth about Ukraboronprom and Ukraine defense uh, industry trying to expand and build new weapon systems, uh, rearm itself with additional ammunition, building drones, of course, uh, a variety of drones from aerial to land to naval drones that we've seen play out quite successfully in the Black Sea. So all of that will go towards defense. Ukrainian budget is still highly reliant on IMF loaning and, of course, on humanitarian financial aid coming from the United States. Now, another thing that came out quite worrying, not talking about the budget, but about potentially the future of Ukrainian budget, is that the new Speaker of the House is planning to potentially scrap all humanitarian aid going towards Ukraine, so they will keep the military funding going because most of that goes towards the U.S. defense companies, uh, whereas all the humanitarian aid that right now pays a bulk of Ukraine's social care pensions for people that it might be scrapped. So that is quite worrying. And I think perhaps the budget tried to put in some precautions in place. Um, when it comes to the GDP growth, 4.6%, uh, very optimistic. In the first project of the bill, they had 5%. I think the Lawmakers tried to get a bit more realistic, put in the figure of 4.6. But in any case, for the country at the time of war, that growth of GDP, that's very reassuring. And I think Ukraine is definitely on a good track to, to keep existing as a nation. And for now, that low of a, a benchmark is really good for us. Well, thank you so much, Aliona, for coming in and talking to us. It's been really fascinating and it's really nice to see you again, especially here at The Telegraph. Let's move now to our final thoughts then. Dom or Francis, would you like to start? Yeah, OK, I will go first, please, David. And I've been looking at the news as we've been on air. Jens Stoltenberg, who's the Secretary General of NATO, he's in Berlin. Going to see um, Chancellor Schultz there. He's, he's done his opening opening statement. It's all very, all very lovely. I'm um, looking at the statement now, but he... Um, He's talking about, uh, in amongst it, I think there are some pointed little messages that will be uh, placeholders for further discussion. So Jens Stoltenberg, he says, uh, blah, 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 Germany is marvellous. Germany is also making historic investments in defence. Your commitment to invest 2% of GDP by next year is important for all allies, the whole alliance, yada, yada, yada. So making the point, 2% is a floor, not a ceiling, making that point there that, that, that just getting out the two percent uh, which germany doesn't meet along with many others two percent of gdp spent on defense not yet met by germany but also highlighting that germany is committed to meeting that by next year so i thought that was quite interesting that he put that little marker down and then 
bit more, you know, loads more stuff, uh, lots more stuff. I mean, all, all good stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Germany's great. Germany's great. We must continue to give the Ukrainians the weapons they need to stay strong on the battlefield today so they can be strong at the negotiating table tomorrow. Taurus, Taurus, Taurus. You can almost hear him saying it. He then says Germany is providing critical support for Marder and Leopard tanks to IRIS-T air, defense, air defences and munitions. These contributions help Ukraine defend its freedom. They help keep Europe safe. And yes, he then says, and Germany is actually the second largest supporter to Ukraine among NATO allies, only next to the United States. So there you go. Don't at me. Right. But I think it's really interesting. Some of those little little pointed little, um, they weren't digs at all, but little little placeholders that I'm sure are going to come up on the agenda over the next, uh, I don't know how long it's there for, probably just today. But um, yeah, let's have a, let's keep your fingers crossed for Taurus. Thank you very much, Dom. Francis Sternley. Thanks, David. I want to end with a very small and obvious point, but one that seems to be being forgotten in all the talk of encouraging Ukraine to the negotiating table. Were that to happen, it would mean that almost every war crime committed in Ukraine, all those thousands of kidnapped children, the women and babies killed by shelled fire, the executed civilians in Butcher and Irpin, which we know were mandated by the very highest echelons of the Kremlin, all the way up to Putin himself, would effectively be mandated as a legitimate act of war. For any peace treaty would be signed between Moscow, Kiev and other parties with the caveat, by implication, if not design, that those who carried out the invasion will not be pursued for those crimes. How else can you have a lasting peace? And why would Putin sign any agreement that kept him on the ICC arrest warrant list? These aren't past activities either, but are happening now. As we speak, more children being taken away from their parents and transported to re-education camps in Russia. How can we, as an international community, permit that? I remember leaders saying it wasn't permissible. And yet here we are with that apparently being totally forgotten in these discussions about peace. Where did all the conversations go about peace only being predicated on Putin's removal? Now, I really hesitate to use this comparison. I think the Holocaust was a particular kind of evil in a category all of its own. But in trying to understand how the war crimes issue is not front and centre, I cannot help but think back to the early reactions to news trickling through about the deportations and evacuations during the Nazi period. Many simply could not believe it. There was a mental block. The thought was almost too terrifying to contemplate, so many didn't want to confront it. Jan Karski's reflections at the end of Claude Landsman's documentary, The Karski Report, captures this well. He acted as a courier in 1940 to 1943 to the Polish government in exile and to Poland's Western allies about the situation in German-occupied Poland and reported the camps directly to President Roosevelt and others. He said, and I quote, this kind of event had never happened. For a normal, cultivated human being with political responsibilities, for each of us, moreover, the brain can only function within certain limits, what our environment with books, knowledge, information has put in our brain. And at some point, our brains may no longer have the capacity to understand. I think we are seeing similarities here in the West with regard to war crimes committed in Ukraine. Such things were not meant to be possible in the liberal world we were told that we would inherit. Another factor, I think, is the sense of powerlessness. There's no easy way of stopping these activities, or at least that's the perception. And if one acknowledges evil, one feels obliged to act. If you don't, 
you can claim ignorance. So it becomes a priority to instead to talk about where we can help, namely in terms of giving the Ukrainians weapons to fight or other support. So I challenge those nudging the Ukrainians in the direction of peace now into thinking more deeply about the implications of such an act and what it would effectively enable. Thank you very much, Dom Nichols and Francis Sternley. Aliona, would you like the very final words? Thank you, David. I think I would like to look ahead into 2024. And I, I would like to look ahead into 2024 as an extremely positive year for Ukraine to come. It's going to be a challenging one because we can see the pre-electoral divisions in the United States, who is the strongest supporter for Ukraine in this war. We are going towards an elections here in the UK, which we don't really know what the outcome will be of, of those like and what that will mean for Ukraine. We are going towards the elections in the European Union, and we are seeing some really disruptive social cohesion issues within the European societies after the breakout of the Israel-Hamas war, the rise of far-right populism that might be used by Russia, which it has before, to disrupt the European politics and put in place someone who will stall Ukraine's progress in the elections. So these are all the bad sides. But let's look at the positives. In the last two years, Ukraine has used up all of the ammunition supplies of the Western countries, according to many claims. Many of those weapons, again, going back to quoting my brother, who must be getting red cheeks right now and, and hiccups because of me, that's the Ukrainian superstition. When you talk about someone behind their back, he said to me that every third end law he used didn't work. Javelins were extremely rare. He had to use, he had to learn how to use them via PDF files and only got to use one in the course of two years because they're so rare. A lot of supplies of ammunition just never got to the front line or were used up very quickly and were very rare. So I am positive about the re-ammunition of the West and as a result, re-ammunition of Ukraine with the newer weapons and more advanced ones. I'm very excited about Ukraine getting long-range weapons, the longer-range attackums, the continuation of storm shadows and scalps from Europe. Potentially, hopefully, Germany will come to its senses with Taurus, just like it did with the tanks. So there's a lot of equipment going towards Ukraine in 2024, along with the fighter jets. Now, they will only be flying Ukrainian skies in spring 2024, but I think they will make a massive difference on the front line, and we will actually be able to advance on the eastern flank in the south. And I think we're very close to getting the Black Sea back, not just for ourselves, but also for all the other NATO countries in the Black Sea, such as Romania, Bulgaria, and Turkey. So I'm extremely positive about those things. I'm positive about elections being held in Russia, because even though Putin will get reelected inevitably, wink, wink, there's a lot of room for disruption. I can see and I can hear some uh, chats going on amongst Russian opposition about getting prepared for those elections. So we don't really know what's going to be happening in the country, what kind of subversions groups will be functioning there, and what the outcome for Putin will be, as we've seen in June this year, that all it takes is one man to turn around his troops and to walk somewhere closer towards Moscow, and the whole regime stops, and the private jets stop, fl start fleeing Moscow, and screaming out loud and 
trying to figure out where to go and what to do. So Russia is way more fragile than we expect. So I'm really looking forward to the spring elections. As I've said, I'm not really expecting for Putin to be overthrown, but you never know. So all in all, 2024, a very positive year for Ukraine. I'm not saying the year of the victory, although it will be the year where the victory will be brought much closer home. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.